Hello, everybody, and happy Pride. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, geek culture, and other stuff. And we're coming off a weekend that saw trans liberation marches in Boston and Brooklyn. I marched in the one in Boston over the weekend, and then the next day I went out and did a race and did pretty well. Also, congratulations are officially in order. For Chelsea Wolf, late last week it was confirmed by USA Cycling that thanks to her fifth place finish at UCI World Urban Championships and her number three team ranking overall, she clinched the alternate spot in BMX freestyle for next month's Olympics in Tokyo. So Chelsea Wolf makes history. She becomes the first transgender American to make a U.S. Olympic team. Congratulations, Chelsea. Have a great time in Tokyo and think you could bring me back a t-shirt, just saying. Also this week, we had a birthday among the friends of the show. J.C. Cooper, that powerlifting pioneer, turned gained another year. Congratulations and happy birthday, J.C. In some of the news, something to read in Outsports. It came... Came down the wire on Wednesday, an op-ed by Rosie Sexton. Now, Rosie Sexton is a little bit of a pioneer herself. She, he was among the first. She was the first British competitor in UFC. And at the and way back in 2013, she had, shall we say, less than kind words to say about a certain MMA competitor named Fallon Fox. Well, in this op-ed, she basically did mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. She basically stated that she did, back then she didn't know better, so she wasn't able to do better. And now she has. She said in the article, quote, I'm now embarrassed by some of the stuff I said back then. I looked at the evidence in the sports science limited that it was in 2013. What I missed was listening to the voices of trans people. If you want to know more, check out the op-ed itself in on Outsports.com. It's worth your time. It's worth reading it. And to Rosie, all I can say is you got the opportunity to know better, and now you know better, and now you're on the first step to doing better. I salute you for that. You see, listening and questioning, it's important. And it's a key part. In many ways, what Pride is about, what this month is about, even though this is something we should be doing 365 days a year, 366 days in a leap year. But listening and questioning is something to look at in regards to sport inclusion. And there are questions, fair questions, like where do we go next? How does the movement pivot? How do we change the movement to fit the moment? And how do we continue the flow towards inclusion in this time of retrenchment, especially transgender people. Well, I was involved in a panel discussion on Tuesday sponsored by Vanderbilt University that better clarified and perhaps brought some answers to those questions. The panel was titled Taking Pride in Athletics, LGBTQIA Perspectives in Sport. And it featured myself alongside a pioneer who was there at those difficult beginnings and a glimpse at what is and what can be. The panel was moderated by Andrew Marinus, the author of Singled Out, the true story of Glenn Burke, yet another best-selling feather in his cap, and he's working on his next book right now, A History of the 1976 U.S. Women's Olympic Basketball Team. They participated in the first ever Olympic tournament, Montreal, 1976. I'm looking forward to reading that book because there were some prominent names on that team, and many of them before they became the icons, not just in basketball, but in women's athletics that we know them as now. Also on the panel was a pioneer of the past, Sean Kelly one of the founders of the gay games alongside U.S. Olympic decathlete Dr. Tom Waddell. 
He was director of the second gay games in 1986 and among the leadership of the first gay games that was held outside the United States, Vancouver, in 1990. It was an honor to share a stage with him. And with an eye to the present and the future, also on the panel was one Braden Abrahamson, a member of Vanderbilt's successful women's bowling teams. They graduated this year. As a freshman, they were a part of Vanderbilt's 2018 national title squad. In their sophomore year, Abrahamson came out as trans non-binary and continued to compete on the team and helped Vanderbilt to NCAA tournament appearances in both 2019 and 2021. So you had three LGBTQ athletes, people who love sports and want to make it better. And they took some time to look at how we can make it better, how we can make the movement for inclusion grow into the future. Also, a special thanks to Vanderbilt University, especially to Alfred de Graffenried, Associate Vice Chancellor of the school, for allowing the Transporter Room to run this special program. Sean, if you can turn your camera and microphone on. We'll get started with you. Sean, and, and thanks again for joining us. You've been kind to speak to various uh, Vanderbilt audiences over the last few months. I've really enjoyed uh, a chance to get to know you, uh, even interviewed you uh, in part um, for my book on, on Glenn Burke, and you really helped fill me in on what uh, San Francisco was like in that period in the 1970s. And I was fascinated by what you told me when we spoke uh, originally about just sort of the state of, of uh, gay community in San Francisco at that time where a lot of things are just getting started, you know, and, and you talked to me about how things like softball leagues and tennis federations fit into that infrastructure that was just getting built. And I wondered if you could talk about that to our group today. Right. So the, the first year that I was in San Francisco, I still was living with ex-college roommates from Vanderbilt and still was playing the same persona I had had then. But after they left in 79, I came out and uh, found, threw myself into uh, the gay community in San Francisco. I moved to an apartment at the corner of 19th and Castro and uh, was on my way. And so the, I remember uh, wanting to find somebody to play tennis with and answered a personal ad in one of the newspapers uh, for someone looking for players. And he and I began playing and he said, listen, I have a friend who uh, would like to start a gay tennis group. Would you like to be a part of that? And I said, sure. And so this little vestigial group began in the summer of 1980. And at the same time, there were all of the other threads that holds the community together that were developing. I mean, you had a gay chamber of commerce, um, you had a gay doctors group, gay lawyers group, um, uh, you know, the, the golf, uh, small golfing group, bowling was better organized, volleyball was organized, softball had been going on for several years by that point. Um, I remember my friend who started the tennis group, Les Ballman, uh, who was about uh, 15 years older than me. So a generation before he had been kicked out of Navy and moved to Sausalito, to, which was an artist community then. He said, you know, the only thing that I really insist on, he said, is that it, the name of the group had gay in the uh, title because the softball groups in the early development had uh, in the mid seventies had, it was the community softball league, which was explicitly clouding the fact that it was predominantly gay membership. Uh, and so it, after the community softball league, there was the gay softball league. And so we called ourselves the Gay Tennis Federation. And uh, in less than a year, we were hosting a tournament for people around the country. And so you would see one person come from uh, Dallas who would go back to Dallas and begin a gay tennis group in Dallas. And 
And so it, it's in the same way that it is spread in San Francisco from one person having one other person he or she knew that played tennis to uh, exponential growth until we had, you know, could mount a, a team to go play against Los Angeles and, and go elsewhere and host other people from around the country. And so that was the first uh, U.S. Gay Open was in May of 1981. And then the second one was in May of 82. And then uh, that's that August, uh, August of 82 was the first gay games. And our club ran the tennis portion of that. And when the gay games were uh, first, you know, conceived, you know, nothing like this had ever happened before. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of the intent went beyond sports. You know, can you talk about... Um, what was the feeling of the, as, of the purpose of holding the gay games and what did it mean to the participants in that inaugural event? It was, uh, I think, con conceived as, well, first of all, it was founded by two people. One was Dr. Tom Waddell, who had been an Olympic athlete in 1968 in track and field and the other uh, local community sports organizer, Mark Brown. And so they came up with the idea of a gay Olympics. And uh, there were all kinds of Olympics that were allowed in, in the US at that point, the police Olympics, the uh, Jewish Olympics, the senior Olympics, um, all, all kinds of different Olympics, but uh, at a certain, when it became apparent in the summer of 82 that the gay Olympics were going to take place and weren't just a pipe dream, uh, they were sued by the United States Olympic Committee over the unlicensed use of the name Olympic. And that was the case that eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court where we lost five to four in 1987. Uh, but the idea was to have an event in which it would allow people to come out, allow people of all athletic ability uh, or none prior to uh, beginning to train for it, to come together and to do their his or her personal best. And, um, and in a, a non-political atmosphere in that no emphasis on nations competing each other. So everyone was uh, marched in, identified by a city that he or she came from. And, and, uh, and it was a wonderful coming out event for all of the people there. And to march into the decrepit uh, former professional football stadium, Kizar Stadium in Golden Gate Park with the thousands of people in the stand cheering. It was just uh, a very, very moving experience. Uh, I know that when I later uh, got a chance to work for the second gay games, I ran into a neighbor of mine and told him how excited I was by this. And he said, you know, Sean, he said, other than second to coming out, the going, just going to, the ceremonies at the first gay games was probably one of the most significant experiences of my life. And I thought to myself, how lucky am I? How many people get a chance to work on something that um, anyone would describe as one of the most significant things of their life? Wow. So um, that was, it had a tremendous emotional charge for the participants and really the first gay game set the the path to see that it would happen uh, as it will happen again uh, in 2022 in Hong Kong. That's terrific. And one more question for you, Sean, before we move on to Carly, but uh, Gay Games 2 takes place in 1986, you know, right in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. And I know that th there was some question about whether those that event should even continue. And you felt that it was important that it did. Now, could you t explain, um, what the environment was surrounding uh, Gay Games 2 and why you felt it was so important to continue? Well, <clears throat> we were, I mean, of course, the, the planning for it began in 1982 before the 
full dimensions and certainly the before the the nightmare of the the swell of the epidemic became apparent to everyone but once we were into it we believed that the emphasis on um, health and well-being in the community was an important message to carry forward and <clears throat> we used it as an opportunity i remember we worked very closely with the san francisco aids foundation to provide same-sex uh, or safe-sex packets to all of the participants there. And so we wanted to uh, make sure that we were doing the responsible thing that we could do to uh, transmit knowledge about the virus, which was so still so underdeveloped uh, around the world as to what was really going on. But it was, of course, it was uh, a terrible time to be in San Francisco because all of these new friends that I had made in the tennis league, especially, but also across the different sports as I was working on the, as executive director for Gay Games 2 in 86, um, as they began getting sick and dying. It was a, a really difficult, to say the least, time of my life. It's so important that you kept it going and then, you know, were called on to, uh essentially helped run the event in Vancouver as well. And now that it, uh, the event continues today, as you mentioned, uh, and so we're proud that a Vanderbilt person was at the, at the root of all of this. So thank you for what you've done, Sean. Uh, we'll come back to you as we open this up to the, to the entire panel for more questions later. But Carly, if you could now turn your camera and mic on. Uh, we're excited to have Carly Webb with us, proudly wearing our Northwestern Purple will consider the Northwestern the Vanderbilt of the Big Ten. And I know you're excited that you have a new athletic director who's a former Vanderbilt football player and in, in Derek Gregg. But Carly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me and Anchor Down. All right. What do you all say at Northwestern? What's your equivalent of Anchor Down? Go Cats. Go Cats? All right. Well, go Cats. <laughs> we, keep, we keep it simple. At <laughs> we keep it simple in Evanston. It's what we do. <laughs> All right. Well, I love how you describe yourself as an athlete, an activist, and a journalist. And I was wondering if you could give us all a sense of, you know, some of your activities on, in all three of those areas. Well, um, well, as a journalist, uh, I work. I've been in the been in the business for a quarter century. Um, actually, now this is my twenty sixth year in. I just turned fifty. Over the weekend, I was in a duathlon down along the dawn along the Long Island Sound and I finished third in my age group. It was my first race after 50. I'm very, I'm very proud because honestly, I didn't think I had anything given that, you know, we've gone through this year of isolation and COVID and all these other things. We have, I mean, training's been at a premium, let alone just getting in a race and to have an opportunity to run and not only run, but run well meant a lot to me. As far as the act, as far as the activism goes, that plays into being an athlete and that also plays into being a journalist. I mean, being, being a transgender American at this time with what we're seeing in this country with 33 states putting up 120 plus pieces of legislation across the state, across the states, including the, including the ugliness that was passed in Tennessee recently, where you have, now they're saying, okay, let's just, let's make every, let's out every transgender Tennessean by putting a sign up saying, Yes, we're going to be good to people and let them use the bathroom. It, let them use the bathroom in our establishment. I mean, I thought we were, I mean, that's so 1960s. But being an activist in many ways permeates the, other, permeates the other two. As a journalist, I get a platform and an opportunity to talk about issues across, not just trans issues, but issues across inclusion in sport across the board. I do want to give a quick acknowledgement to Sean Kelly being here today because because of Sean Kelly because of Tom Waddell the explosion in inclusion that we're seeing right now where we're getting more mainstream acceptance and, and athletic departments are getting wise and learning and athletes are learning and coaches are learning that just didn't happen in a vacuum that happened because of a Sean Kelly that happened because of Tom Waddell that happened because a group a group of gay and lesbian people got together in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, especially in the 80s during the during the ugly plague years where we lost, where we lost people who potentially would be elders 
to our communities now. And let's not discount how important that how important how much of a loss that was and how much that ripples into now. But also let's not discount what the gay games meant. If it wasn't for the gay games, there would be this. I don't believe this inclusion would have happened as fast or as far reaching. And we still have a long way to go. But I just want to give that acknowledgement as someone who is a beneficiary of those pioneers. But that and that's part of what being a journalist of being a journalist has allowed me to do to spread that word and to spread that message and to get more of those stories out there. And also that was a, that's what allows me to be in in athletic and in sports spaces to just be visible. Visibility matters. Representation matters. And when you're there and you're visible and you're competing, that leads people to perhaps come up to you and ask questions and people who ask questions and are curious. That's what leads to it leads to more positive interactions than negative and that's what leads to understanding and understanding leads to growth and growth leads to inclusion hmm. oh that's terrific what, what what are the questions that you get asked and how do those conversations typically go well a lot of those conversations begin with begin with people asking me for example what's your thoughts about what you're seeing what you're seeing in the landscape right now at one at one level and I often tell them that and I often tell them that what you're off what you're seeing as a reaction to people that are playing in many ways off the ignorance of the average person not just in regards to trans issues but in regards to sports sporting regulations and also sporting resen results as well now there are some people that come with a very negative slant right from the beginning. I've been called a cheater before. I've been, I've been, I've been told that I've been called man in a dress before at a, at a sporting event. I've been, I've had to deal with those sorts of things. And some of these people, you just got to get away with them and roll off your back. Sometimes you do get a teaching moment. And when you do get an opportunity as a, at a teaching moment, you take it because I had that, I had that really quite recently when someone asked, how do you feel about cheating some about cheating someone and just self no no they didn't say that they said so you can just self id and you can just compete as a woman you can just say you're a woman today and you can compete as that i said oh god i wish it was that simple unfortunately it's not and then i actually literally they actually listened as i went for 15 minutes to walk through all the steps that i have to do to compete all the things that and also in a sense all the things I've had to go through to get to the point where I am now. And then at the end, they were, they were like, I'm sorry, I said that I'm going to go off and learn more. Huh. And most importantly, it's what, and this person said at the end, I'd be proud to line up against you at a race. And here, and you want to know something, Andrew, this past Sunday, that same person was in the same race I was in. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I ran into that same person. <laughs> She, this person saw me. She saw me putting my bike in transition and just gave me this big hug and said, "I'm. we're actually going to race against each other. Said, yep. <laughs> and it was a big smile. She, and here's the thing. She finished second in her age group. I finished third in mine. So it was like, it was celebrations all the way around. But that's an example of how you can have that teaching moment. Oh, that's and, those teaching mo and those teaching moments matter. And I encourage people... I encourage especially cis and straight people seek those moments out seek those moments out don't be afraid to step in it don't be afraid as a good friend of mine who's an activist kamora harrington in connecticut says the first step to getting to inclusion and getting to understanding is you have to be willing to step in it and you have to be willing to be awkward and you have to be willing to be afraid and you have to be willing even perhaps to say the wrong thing and get called in on it but you have to step in it if you want to move us forward you mentioned uh, the, the sort of the legislation that we've seen in, in far too many states recently. Um, here in Tennessee, we also had the uh, anti-transgender athlete uh, legislation that was passed. And some people say, you know, that they're doing this to, quote unquote, protect uh, women's sports. What do you say to people uh, who argue that line of, uh, of that argument? I ask them questions. The first question is, uh, what was your view on weight room gate? Remember at the, the NCAA the, tournament. Yeah, at the NCAA tournament. What's your view on weight regain? What's your view on pay equity? What is your view on on the fact that that you're spend that, for example, at the division one level, you're spending six dollars on men's athletes for every for, on men's athletes for every one dollar you're spending on women's? 
What's your view on Title IX at this this time? What is your what's your view, for example, on the WNBA's recent collective bargaining agreement, which is one of the most forward-thinking collective bargaining agreements in all of sport? And I think it can be a template not just for women's sports but for men's sports as well in regards to not just the on-field issues, safety issues, but also the lifestyle issues and work-life issues that are involved in it. They went places that sports hasn't gone, but sports needs to go. I mean, as as Naomi Osaka is teaching us right now, athletes are people too. Athletes are human beings first and foremost, just like everybody else and all these and all the human factors need to be taken into account. So I ask questions. I, I ask questions and usually people who are truly for exclusion, they don't have answers to those. Because right. if you're really about if you're really about advocating for women's athletics, those are the real issues in women's athletics. Those are the real issues. Pay equity is an issue. Opportunity is an issue, not just and not just for athletes, but in coaching and administration. For example, Vanderbilt has an athletic director who is a woman, one of the few. We need more. We need we need more across the board. We need more and, and we need more women. We need more LGBTQ people. We need them in administration. We need them in, we need them on our coaching staffs. We need them on our training staffs. We need them on our athletic medicine staffs. We need more diversity and inclusion across the board. And that those are real issues we can talk about. Opportunity, inclusion, access. Those are the issues. Terrific. Uh, I saw on your uh, an article you did, you said a core philosophy of your life was a quote from uh, Baird Rustin. And it was when an individual is protesting society's refusal to acknowledge their dignity as a human being, their very act of protest confers dignity on them. And I was wondering how that uh, has played out in your own life and how you've seen that play out in the lives of other uh, transgender or gay athletes. In my, in my own life, like I said, it's a core philosophy because it was something I was taught at a very young age is that you have to, if you don't stick up for yourself, that's something my mom always told me, if you don't stick up for yourself, no one else is going to. But I've also seen in my life kind of an amendment to that. When you see someone standing up for themselves, that gives the courage for someone else to do the same. And that gives the courage for communities to come together and do the same. And it's the same thing in sports because of the things like the gay games. We're all of a sudden seeing that mainstream and elite sports are starting, are starting to realizing that inclusion is the way, inclusion is the way it has to go. And more and more athletes are realizing that, no, I can be myself and be in the game. And all it takes is someone, all it takes was one, all it took was one person in 1988 to just proclaim who they were, who they were and become the first out Olympian. And that led to a small trickle. And that trickle is now leading to a steady stream. And in Rio, it led to a flood. 68 out athletes, 43 won medals, 16 gold medals. As our as Outsports' co-founder Sid Ziegler says, it's a lot easier to perform when you're not keeping the secret. You look at those athletes who are who are out loud and proud and performing. They're not just they're not just LGBTQ faces of the games, Andrew. They're the faces of the games. You look at people like Brittany Griner, like a Nicola Adams. Look at Megan Rapino. You look at a Gus Kenworthy. You look at all these people who are coming out. Look at Matthew Mitchum in 2008 in Beijing. Not, are they not only are they just out and proud faces, they're the faces. They're the people that you turn on NBC to see. And that's only going to continue and it's only going to get larger, especially with this young generation that's coming up. I, there's a lot. This young generation's not taking any shorts from anybody. And that's what I love about them. I mean, as an older person, I draw a lot of... I draw a lot of inspiration from them and I take a lot of cues from them because the, the millennials and Gen Z, they are, they're affirming their place. And that scares some people that scares some people my age for, for me, that fires me up. That fires me up to affirm who I am going forward. So I say young folks, especially thank you. Thank you. you may, this old girl is following your lead. You know what that sound means? We have to take a break pay some bills but when we come back the younger generation speaks and the panel rings in on some issues i'm carly chardonnay webb this is the transporter room stay with us
and welcome back to the Transporter Room and now more of our special panel on Pride in Athletics with our friends at Vanderbilt University. You know, as a member of this younger generation, first of all, what does it mean uh, to hear what people like what Carly and, and Sean have had to say so far this afternoon? Um, I think that it's just like, as someone who... Uh, came into themselves very much with the assistance of folks in an older generation. Um, it's, it's a very cyclical relationship, right? Um, we're drawing on, on inspiration and support from them and to fulfill and come into fruition of our legacy. And as we continue our legacy, they find power to continue funding and supporting, right? So it's a, it's a kind of a very cyclical, like we're pouring our energy into them. They're pouring their energy into us. And I think that that's like, it's refreshing to know that we both have each other's backs. Um, and I think that that's like the best part. Um, I think especially what Carly was saying about paying tribute to those that came before us um, is super, super critical. Um, and I just actually took a class in the um, AADS department last semester that focused on black LGBTQ histories in the United States. Um, and it was wonderfully taught course um, by Dr. Claudine Taff and it was just a phenomenal thing to experience. I feel like a lot of the LGBTQ history that we do learn um, is very whitewashed, much like of the majority of American history. So it was really cool to be able to focus on the more marginalized stories that did have a greater, you know, a higher impact level um, that we just don't get to hear very often. Oh, that's great, Brayden. And, and Brayden, I think there's probably some people on this webinar today that might be surprised to know that there is even such thing as college bowling, you know, and that uh, Vanderbilt has won uh, national championships in, in this sport. And I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit of, of your journey as a bowler and what that experience um, athletically, we'll talk more about, uh, you know, maybe off the lane uh, experiences, but what it was like for you just, you know, coming to college at Vanderbilt as a bowler. Yeah. So I started bowling when I was five. Um, I just kind of fell into it after going to a birthday party that was hosted at a bowling alley. Um, and I was competing by the age of seven um, and kind of just fell up with it from there. Once I realized that I could pursue a college career um, in bowling, I set soccer aside and um, kind of just full, <laughs> full body jumped into bowling. Um, so after learning and um, kind of continuing my athletic career throughout high school, um, bowling is a very individualized sport, especially in the Pacific Northwest. There's not like high school bowling like there is in the Midwest or in the South. It's just not a thing. Um, so it was a, a little bit of a, a turn in my experience to go from primarily individually, like competing individually to competing on a team. Um, but that was something that I had always longed for. Um, and Vanderbilt was kind of the pinnacle of athletic um, an academic duo in the bowling world. Um, they're nationally ranked, um, both academically and athletically for the bowling program. And as an NCAA Division I sport, um, they had everything that to offer that I was looking for and had pursu been pursuing um, from a very young age. And I was just one of the lucky few that was able to find my way in there and with a bunch of persistence and not necessarily harassing, but you know, not letting the coaching staff forget about me. Um, that was a, a critical play part in my journey to Vanderbilt. Now, at the same time that you're, you know, attending a, a tough university and competing at a very high level in bowling, you're, you're really sort of discovering a lot about yourself, you know, right in the midst of this is when, you know, you, you're changing your pronouns and, and your names and uh, what were the sort of the, the, the joys and the challenges of these changes that were taking place in the midst of this academic and athletic career? Yeah, so I think I, I began questioning. Um, I didn't really have the terminology for for much of my, my identity at the time. Um, I was kind of always like the token straight friend in the group of gay friends <laughs> in high school. Um, a lot of my friends identified as being LGBTQ um, from a young age, and I was just kind of like the token straight friend that was always around. Um, much, <laughs> much to our realization now, it was just like I didn't have the terminology and hadn't really like put time or energy into experiencing myself. Um, and so that quickly changed once I got to college. Um, so my current girlfriend, um, and she's actually my former teammate, 
Um, she was a senior my freshman year, and she um, is identified as bisexual and um, really helped lead me towards finding the accurate and appropriate resources on campus um, to kind of like navigate through the questions that I had for myself um, and the start of my journey. Um, in no way did she like pressure me to do anything. None of the staff, uh, like the LGBTQ office at Venerable, like they don't really, <laughs> they're really just there as a guide. Um, and of course you come to them and they are just a phenomenal resource. Um, the director, Chris Purcell, well, previous director, Chris Purcell, he's actually up at um, Chatham University now. Um, and two program coordinators have come and gone since then. And now the interim director, Rob Nelson, is phenomenal and has been a saving grace in my whole coming to fruition of myself. Mm -hmm. So um, again, like a shout out to the folks that come before me and have helped guide me through. So um, getting to Vanderbilt was definitely a challenge. It did not take anything less than blood, sweat, and tears. Um, and, but once I got there, it was, uh, I was really glad to be there. Okay. Now, I know you did have pockets of, of support. You mentioned uh, your teammate, your girlfriend, uh, also, you know, at the Casey Potter Center. But um, I think it was fair to say it was, it was uneven in terms of your teammates' reaction. Um, how did that compare to maybe what you had expected? And what, what were, maybe if there's any lessons learned or things that you'd like to share with people about how that experience went, how we could make it better, you know, for transgender athletes in the future? Yeah, I think that... Um... The big thing for me was I wasn't really sure how they would react. Um, I mean, my girlfriend was on the team and she was openly bi. Um, I came out as bi before, um, about a year before like my gender identity, <laughs> not crisis, but exploration, I guess, um, kind of came forward and they were all chill with that. Didn't really matter because um, it didn't directly impact them, I think, in any regard. Um, and I started navigating the gender identity exploration very independently. Um, they were not included on any of that. The only person that was included on that was Ariana, my girlfriend. Um, and I think that for me, there were a couple people on the team that I felt like now retrospectively, I should have included on that process because I know that they could have been um, a really big support system in helping me transition um, socially within the team. Um, but I just wasn't quite ready for that yet. Um, and that level of being out in a space that I was still new in as a first year student, um, and even as a sophomore, I just wasn't quite ready for. Um, and it's, it's also important to, for me that I felt like I didn't need their permission to live who I was authentically. Um, I didn't need their acceptance because in reality, I had come a long way to accepting myself and I didn't want any more barriers into that. Um, I didn't want to second guess myself. The big thing for me was I had to do a lot of research on making sure that if I transitioned socially, changed my name, changed my pronouns, changed my identifiers, that would not impact my team's ability to compete in the women's sports sector. Um, as I found out through a lot of like research on the NCAA website um, and talking to a couple other folks higher up throughout this journey as long as I hadn't done anything to medically transition, it was fine. Um, it wouldn't change the status of my team. So I think that retrospectively, I would have sat down um, and talked to my teammates first because I came out um, via Facebook and Instagram post um, and they all saw it and it was right before our team dinner. And I think that I would have changed um, that process. I would have sat down with my teammates and my coaches um, first and kind of like explained where I was coming from, let them answer any questions so it wasn't much of a shock um, and kind of like a, a bomb dropped on them to say. Um, but in the moment it felt right. Um, and from there on, I was hesitant and I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and I, I don't think it was any, there was never any like outward disagreement or um, disrespect or unacceptance, um, but there were a few players in particular where it was just over the next 48 to 72 hours, like did not acknowledge my existence. Um, and I think it was more of a, a, a fear of messing up with a name or a pronoun. Um, and I also think there's just like a lot of misinformation or just lack of information on 
what it means to be a queer athlete. Um, and there was no, I started along with a couple other um, LGBTQ athletes, a affinity group um, for LGBTQ identified student athletes at Vanderbilt, um, but it quickly fell apart because the folks that I did found it with um, graduated and no one else came. So uh, that was a difficult thing for me because I know that they're there. I can see them in the hallway. I can, you know, I know who they are, um, but they're not ready and that's okay. Um, that was just like a hard thing for me to go through is I'm trying to find acceptance in my own team. And I know that people are as well and I can see them and they can see me and they're like, it's not making any progress. So I think that that was the, the hardest part of trying to find people in my corner and I can see them that they're in the right house. They're in the right neighborhood. They're just not ready to fully step in yet. So. Right. Right. Oh, that's really insightful. Um, question we had pre-submitted was, um, and Carly, I'll start with you and then ask Sean and Braden to weigh in, but what role do you think the media does play or can play to help professional athletes? And let's expand that to college athletes too. feel more comfortable coming out uh, in the future. What do you think, Carly? Well, for starters, um, there's a lot of excellent writing talent, broadcasting talent, editorial talent in the LGBTQ community. How about hiring us? Many of them have had to struggle and fight and claw and bleed just to find work. You know, though it most re recently the San Francisco Examiner made journalism history in this country by making by bringing in Christina Carl as their sports, as their executive sports editor. That is the first transgender person to be an editor of a major daily newspaper in this country. We need more of that. Braden or Sean have anything to add to that? I think that much of what Carly is saying of hire us is critical. Um, allowing us to represent and participate in professional spaces as our authentic selves is so important. Um, and additionally, like with that, it allows folks who hold professional positions to interview other folks that hold an LGBTQ identity, right? And having that comfort level of being interviewed by someone who holds a similar identity to you makes it so much easier. The conversations get deeper. The the understanding and the willingness to participate in those conversations goes up, right? So being able to shine positive and understanding and full-bodied light on athletes who do hold their identities is critical. You know, I think the thing that I would add is that it's where I think the media can really be helpful is by treating the three-dimensional personalities of, of uh, LGBTQ athletes the same way and with the same degree of casualness that they treat uh, straight athletes. So when you have these, uh, you know, so much of what is the filler on things like Olympics broadcasts are little mini personality profiles of athletes. And to the extent that they uh, cover the lives of LGBTQ athletes with the same degree of openness and casualness, I think is really uh, an important thing that the media could do. I, I will share uh, in terms of hiring uh, LGBTQ people, I, I will share the one anecdote from the past, which shows how far we've come. And I don't think this could happen again today, but, um, the only openly gay uh, reporter for San Francisco newspaper when uh, the second gay games happened was Randy Schiltz, who of course was a famous author. And, uh, and I remember Randy Schiltz chose to go on vacation the week of the first, the second gay games because the political people uh, in which he thought were the important people in the gay community uh, weren't interested in sports or didn't see the significance of it. And I think that uh, those of us who see that the, the cultural dimensions of a community are advanced by all of the different elements of it and, and that sports advances the whole um, 
notion of gay liberation, you know, were, were not recognized by the so-called political people when I was coming up. So, uh, you know, I think that having someone there doesn't necessarily guarantee um, good response in the sports world. Um, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left. And so I wanted to uh, give you each a chance to give our audience something to uh, be looking for. Are there, are there LGBT athletes out there right now that you're following that have especially interesting stories, maybe might be competing in the Olympics or in one professional sport or another, uh, or short of an athlete, an issue that, that is important that we should all be keeping an eye on right now. And Braden, I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, so um, two friends of mine, um, Chris Mosier and Cece Telfer are both, um, have been training for the Olympics. Um, I know that Chris has run into a couple injuries um, over the past couple of years, um, but I believe he is still training. And along with Cece Telfer, who is on track to be part of the um, Olympic qualifiers for track and field. Um, so those are two people, both trans, um, who I've had the honor and privilege of meeting with through the NCAA Common Ground um, annual meeting, which was life-changing. Um, so those are the two, at least for my friends that have, that have been working hard to train and get to the point of being able to compete in the 2020 slash 2021 uh, Tokyo Olympics. Uh, terrific. And how about you, Carly? Well, Braden mentioned two of my mentioned two people I'm close to. Both of my look I look up to. Chris Mosier is a, Chris Mosier is a hero to is a hero to all of us in a, in a lot of ways. Cece Telfer. That now, Andrew, you want to talk about just one of those great things you get to cover as a journalist, seeing her story and following her through 2019. She's like a sister to me in many ways, and what she did her senior year at Franklin at uh, Franklin Pierce, what just shows a lot of courage under fire and a lot of grace under fire. And I'm looking forward to seeing her in Eugene, hopefully starting next week at the Olympic trials. But two two people I'm looking at at this, especially with what we have in Tokyo coming up, are actually Paralympians. Canadian Paralympian Ness Murby, who came out last year and who is a multiple medal winner, who is a multiple medal winner for Canada, going back and performing authentically as their authentic selves for the first time, for the first time on this biggest stage. It must be exciting for them. It must be overwhelming and exciting. But also another person I've gotten to know in the last year is an Italian woman named Valentina Petrillo. Valentina Petrillo is, is a trans woman. She is a sprinter. She's heading to Tokyo. She Last week, she became the first transgender Italian to, rep, to wear azuri blue in an international competition. She competed at um, Paralympics European Championships last week. And the thing about her story that draws me is, is that her and I come together. Her and I have a convergence at a hero that we both that we both looked up to as younger people and just coming into the sport. She runs the 200 meters, same as me. And we both have the same hero. Pietro Manea, former world record holder, 1980 Olympic champion at 200 meters. When we first did some pre-interviews for her being on my podcast last year, and she mentioned, who did you look up to growing up? And I said, Pietro Manea, and her eyes lit up. And we are just talking about just him and his career. It was like, it was two athletic, two athletic people having that total fan, fangirl moment. And that is, she is someone I'm really looking at for, for Tokyo. I think it would be awesome for her to, I mean, she's going to have a tough drive because I mean, some of the people that she's going up against are going to be serious business, but just to have, for her to have the opportunity after going through so much, he's had to fight her national federation for the last two years for the right to compete as she is. And now to have that opportunity to go to Tokyo again, it should be exciting and overwhelming. And I'm looking forward to see the story play out. Awesome. And uh, Sean, finally with you, I mean, whether it's a current athlete or someone, you know, since the time that you launched the gay games way back in the 1980s, um, what is, is there an athlete that really stands out to you right now? You know, not, not individually, I just don't follow follow it uh, closely enough. I think the thing that will be very interesting uh, around the Tokyo Olympics 
is the degree to which um, the Japanese conservative attitudes towards uh, LGBTQ people uh, allow for openness on the part of the participants. I know that this, in my view, one of the great values of the gay games as it has moved around the world is to um, help transform local communities by exposing people close up to a non-threatening and completely familiar way uh, athletes um, who also happen to be LGBTQ. And, um, and that it, it has, I have seen it have an effect on a local community. I'm wondering how the exposure of openly uh, gay and lesbian uh, and trans athletes in Tokyo will be reported and uh, in the Japanese press and allowed in the mainstream press, given the attitudes. I'm frankly very concerned about this when it comes to the next gay games in Hong Kong in 2022. Yeah, those are certainly be uh, important issues to, to uh, keep an eye on. And we're up against our time, but uh, Sean, Braden, Carly, thank you so much uh, for joining in this conversation today. Once again, a special thanks to Vanderbilt University for making the Transporter Room and Outsports a part of this special discussion. And a special thanks to you for making the Transporter Room a part of your week. And if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we're doing, come to our Twitter page at Transporter Room or our site on Facebook. After all, what we do, we do it for you. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Live long and prosper. Study as she goes. I'll see you next week.